Sunday ago, we began reading through the book of 1 John. I told you that the book of 1 John, though technically we refer to it as a letter, I feel like it reads not so much as a letter and a little bit more like an essay. The Apostle John, one of the 12, who at the time he wrote this was very elderly, very likely the last of the 12 to still be alive. John wrote this for a new generation of Christ followers, a new generation who was finding in many cases that life in Christ is more complicated than they anticipated. Boy, I feel like a lot of us could identify with that. Hey, this thing is a little bit more complicated than I thought in that hour I first believed. John wrote this essay in large part to help folks like that uncomplicate their faith, to eliminate all of these competing and confusing shades of gray, and to remind us of the elements of Jesus' message that were, are, and always will be straightforward, black, and white. In the first chapter of his essay, which we read last week, we heard John remind us that the message of Jesus means the fullness of life forever, together with God. The rich, the blessed life that God has prepared for us begins not after death, but no, it begins as soon as we respond to the message of Jesus. But if we believe that to be true, if we accept what we heard John say last Sunday, then a logical question follows, and that's what we need to address today. If this tremendous gift of eternal life comes by way of a relationship with God, how do we know if we have a relationship with God? I mean, how do we know that we've actually got it right? Uh, And as well, how do I know that you've got it right? Because maybe you're telling me some things about God, kind of like what we just experienced together forever. How do we know that what that guy's saying or this lady's saying comes from a real relationship with God? How do I know if I've got a real relationship with God? How do we know? It suddenly becomes a very, very important question. When I was in the sixth grade, there was a new student in my class, uh, another boy who had recently moved to the area. His name was Robert. And if you wanted to make a list of all the reasons that you could think of, of why a junior high aged kid would get picked on by his classmates, Robert checked every box on that list. He was brand new to the school. He was the shortest kid in the class. He was also probably the heaviest kid in the class. He had great big thick eyeglasses with great big unruly rims on them. He talked kind of funny. It was clear to us within a few weeks of school beginning that he wasn't the brightest kid in the class. And even by the standards of 11 year old boys, he didn't have the best hygiene. There was every reason for Robert to get picked on by the kids in class, and I'm sorry to report to you that Robert got picked on by all the kids in the class. And so there came this time when Robert, probably in an effort to defend himself, happened to let it slip, happened to mention to a bunch of us boys in the class that he had recently become a black belt in karate. Robert said, 
that he was a black belt in karate. Now bear in mind the rest of us were just 11 years old as well, and so we wondered, could it be true? Could it be true? Some of the boys who had been a little bit more aggressive with Robert took pause at that. Is there any possibility that if we push Robert over the edge, he's gonna turn around and Bruce Lee us all? <laughs> but there were a lot of kids in the class that said, this is ridiculous. There is no way that Robert is a black belt in karate. There were two or three boys in the class that I remember said, I go to karate lessons. I'm a yellow or a blue or I don't know what color the belts were, but they told us all what color belt they had. They said, I've never seen Robert at karate class in town. He's not really a black belt. They had all kinds of different speculations about whether or not he was a, a black belt, and it was based on all different criteria. I remember one of the boys said, I take karate lessons, and my karate teacher told me that there are only like a hundred black belts in the whole world. It's like Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, and like 98 other guys. And he said, now I can't prove it, but what are the chances that Robert is one of the other 98 guys? And that spawned a whole series of conversations on the playground about whether a black belt was tougher than a ninja. And if a black belt could beat a ninja or if a samurai could take them both. And we debated this on and on and on again, but all the while kind of looking at Robert. And I think the consensus among the kids was, I don't think he's a black belt, but I'm not willing to bet my life on it. <laughs> Teacher caught wind of our conversations one day and she said, you know, you guys really shouldn't be picking on Robert and you shouldn't be thinking he's a liar. If he tells you he's a black belt, then he's a black belt. And the kid said, no, teacher, you don't understand. He couldn't possibly be a black belt. I mean, look at him. There's no way he's a black belt. And so this debate went on and on and on. And what I remember about it is everybody had an opinion about whether or not Robert really was a black belt. And everybody's opinion was based on an entirely different set of criteria. Isn't it like that with faith in some ways? We look at people who claim to be Christians and it feels like everybody's got an opinion about whether or not they really are a Christian. And everybody's got a different set of criteria about how they formed their opinion. Oh, she couldn't possibly be a Christian. I saw her at that political rally. Oh, he's definitely a Christian because he gave $10,000 to charity last year. People have different ideas, different thoughts, different concepts, different lenses through which they see what a real relationship with God looks like. And it's all very, very confusing, but it matters. Because just as is the case on the playground with Robert, you might have your opinion, but are you willing to bet your life on it? Are you willing to bet your life on it? There are plenty of people in this world that would claim to be in the kind of relationship with God that has guaranteed them eternal life. But for those of us that are trying to learn, those of us that are trying to invest in our own relationship with the Lord, there's a very important question. Are they right? 
do they really know what they're talking about? And if so, how can we know for sure? It's not just a matter, I don't think, of voyeurism or being curious about somebody else, because if somebody really does have that kind of relationship with God, we all would do well to listen to what they have to say. But if they don't have that kind of relationship with God, then we probably ought to be ignoring them entirely. And so it's clearly in all of our best interests to be able to discern and understand what makes a true child of God. And to that end, John writes this second chapter of his essay. We're actually picking up where we left off in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. I'm going to read all the way through to the end of the chapter. So buckle up, it'll take us a minute. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walking around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, then love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. But you, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie comes from the truth. Who's the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. 
As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. Now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Quite a big chunk, but there's a few things there I want to highlight. John wrote these words for a generation of Christians who were awash in a culture filled with people who claimed to know the best way to live in relationship with God. People who sincerely wanted to find God's blessing in those days, faced the very same conundrum that you and I do when we very sincerely want to find God's blessing today. And that conundrum is this. Who do we listen to? Who's right? What does a real relationship with God actually look like? And so John does what he's been doing for us, which is let's uncomplicate the matter and let's look at it in very simple terms in black and white. He says a relationship with God requires obedience to God's word. Obedience to the words of God. John is nothing if not blunt. In his mind, there's no room for nuance or subtlety on important matters like this. He's not like that. He's just going to come right out and say it. He's going to say a relationship with God requires obedience to God's Words. The things we do in this life don't save us. John's not saying if you want to get saved, you better do all the right things. He's not saying there's a cause and effect relationship here. He's just saying this is what it looks like us. Because of the things we do while they don't save us, they absolutely tell the true story about whether or not we have been saved. And for John, it's really rather simple. He wrote, we heard him say a few moments ago, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. Thank you, John, for being so blunt. <laughs> whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. He goes on a few lines later to, later to say, whoever claims to live in him must, must, must live as Jesus did. In other words, folks who claim the Christian faith better be living a life that demonstrates a submission to the words of God. Is it a perfect life with no errors and no mistakes? Of course not, because if it were that, we probably wouldn't need Jesus. But it better be a life that demonstrates a willing submission to the words of God. You see, in many ways, becoming a Christian is like becoming a citizen of a new kingdom. The Bible itself makes that illustration and that comparison many times. I didn't come up with that on my own. The Bible says it's like becoming a citizen of a new kingdom. And when we become a citizen of a new kingdom, that typically involves a commitment to the laws of our new homeland. 
There's an oath that every naturalized citizen of the United States says before they can be granted citizenship in the United States. Some people in this room have taken that oath. You might recall that one of the lines in it says, I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America, and I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. You see, nobody gets awarded U.S. citizenship because they happened to be obeying U.S. laws. There's more to it than that. It's not obeying the laws that gives you citizenship. It's the other way around. Once you become a citizen, you're expected to obey the laws. Obedience on its own isn't going to transfer your citizenship. In the same way, obeying God's laws can't get you into heaven because laws can't save you. But once you become a citizen, you must commit yourself to obeying the laws of the land. Are you going to get kicked out if you break the law? Of course not. We don't do this, that in this country. And in the same way, nobody loses their salvation because they happen to have committed a sin. But a lifestyle, a lifestyle that flippantly ignores the laws of the kingdom is typically going to land somebody in trouble. And the same can be said for God's kingdom. Do you want to know what a real relationship with God looks like? John says it's really not that complicated. Start, start by eliminating people who have no regard for God's word. Now, obviously, that's not the only thing we need to do. That's not the only thing that John said in that lengthy passage we read. He has more advice, and so he's very quick to add this. He says a relationship with God requires love for one another. It's the second requirement. He has obedience to God's word, but secondly, love for one another. And with his typical straightforward bluntness, he explains what he means by that. He wrote in verse nine, anyone who claims to be in the light, but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Many years later, this same author, John, he had written his gospel, his record of the life of Jesus. And in that gospel, he famously recorded that Jesus one time told the 12 disciples, he said, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. That's what Jesus said. And here we have John a generation later just recalling that and saying it for us once again. A real relationship with God hinges on this issue of are we willing to love one another? It's really a beautifully uncomplicated standard. There's no asterisks here. There's no exceptions. There's no fine print. The lawyers don't have to look the form over and determine if it's legal or not. It's just so much more simple than that. If you harbor hatred for other Christians, you can't have a healthy relationship with God. John says hatred for other believers is a sure sign that we're still living in darkness. About a year and a half ago, a group of people from this church went on a mission trip to New Orleans. We spent a few days in the city there working with one of the missionaries that we support, uh, Josh and Andrea Holder, they have a ministry that uh, is focused on the needs of, of homeless people in the city of New Orleans. And so we spent our time there working with Josh and Andrea and with others who are out meeting and, and, and caring for homeless on the streets of New Orleans. I remember being there, um, being very, very impressed 
and surprised, actually, by the way that many of the homeless cared for one another. We would go out with hot meals and meet folks that Josh and Andrea knew because this is their everyday life, living and working with these folks. And we'd, we'd you know, come up to somebody, hey, Mike, how are you doing? You know, can we get you a meal? And Mike would say, yeah, this Mike isn't homeless. I'm just using him as an example. Uh, Mike, can we get you a meal? And Mike would say, yeah. And Mike would say to us, hey, would you go, would you go, check, would you go check on Don? I haven't seen Don in a few days. Would you check and make sure he's okay? Let me know if you've seen Don around. Or Mike might say, hey, give me two, because Dave was with me earlier today. He had to go to work. He got a job, but he's going to be back here. If you give me two, I'd like to save one for Dave. So when Dave comes back, he can have a meal. Josh and Andre would say, absolutely, for sure. We'll definitely do that. There was a community there of folks who were all in need, but they were willing to take care of one another. If somebody had a need, they were willing to do whatever it took to help the other one out or to see that that need was addressed. I was impressed by that, but Josh and Andrea were quick to assure me that not all the people that they interacted were like that. Some were dangerous. Some were violent toward each other. Some stole. Some were very, very difficult to work with. And they said, it's sad, but eventually one of the things we have to do is stop serving folks like that. Not out of judgment or punishment, not, well, you've been naughty, so there's no meal for you today. No, not for those reasons, but as a matter of practicality. We can't serve folks that are a danger to the others that we are serving. The attitude of folks who were committing criminal action against others presented a clear threat to the safety of everyone involved. And so eventually they would stop serving them. Coming into relationship with God is a lot like a homeless person who's finally found food and shelter. And again, I I didn't come up with that idea myself. The Bible actually says uh, coming into the kingdom of God is like a, a destitute beggar who finds a seat for himself at the grand feast. But the problem is, if you show up to the feast harboring hatred for the other guests, if you come into the community harboring hatred for the other people that God is is saving, if you hate the other beggars that you've encountered at the feast, you present a threat to their survival, and God doesn't allow that. And so a relationship with God requires love for one another. John still isn't done. He goes on. He says, a relationship with God requires rejecting the things of this world. Do you remember the U.S. citizenship oath that I referred to a few moments ago? Uh, The first line in that oath requires all new citizens to affirm that they are rejecting any allegiance that they have ever had to any other homeland. You can't call yourself a naturalized citizen of this nation while still maintaining allegiance to your old nation. And John says it works exactly that way in the kingdom of heaven. Here's how he actually puts it. It's in verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world, do you understand that's that's our old kingdom? If anyone loves the world, then love for the father is not in them. That's an indication that they have not actually transferred their citizenship from the old kingdom to the new. Can I say this? I'm alarmed. 
I'm alarmed by how many Christians build their faith around a theology that focuses on how comfortable we can make ourselves or how many material blessings we can leverage. I'm certainly not opposed to valuing the joy in, in the Christian life. I'm not opposed to valuing the joy that God gives us. We talked a lot about that last week, how salvation means finding that blessed life that God intended for us in the here and now. But there's a difference. There's a difference between that. There's a difference between God's blessing and material comfort. Those are two very, very different things. And I believe that the Bible teaches that a good Christian can and should find joy and fulfillment in their life. But they should also live that life with a distinct longing for our eternal home. It reminds me of the opportunities I've had to go on mission trips. Prior to the pandemic, this congregation went year after year after year after year to work in the same set of communities in Haiti. And I was a part of every one of those teams. And I can tell you that whether it was in Haiti or on other missions trips to other places where I've been, I I enjoy going. I thoroughly enjoy going. I enjoy being there. I I tell folks who are coming with us, maybe it's their first experience on a short-term mission trip. I tell them, you know, stop and smell the roses. Take opportunity, take this opportunity for all that it's worth. After being, especially in Haiti, time and time and time again, I've cultivated a love for the people that we've ministered to and ministered alongside. I love the people of Haiti. I love those experiences. But can I tell you this? At the end of the week, I'm ready to come home. (laughs) At the end of the week, I'm ready to come home. And it's not just about the creature comforts. It's not that I'm hungry for Sue's cooking or I need a hot shower or I want my own bed, not the one I've been, I mean, it is about all of those things, I guess, but it's not just about all of those things. There's something in me that knows that's not where I belong. And it's great to be there, but it's not where I belong. When you have a healthy relationship with God, I believe you'll start to see your entire life like a mission trip. And so my advice is enjoy being here. Love the people you encounter for all your worth, love them. But long for the time that you're ready to go back to your real home. Long for the time when you go to the place you actually belong. Last thing. John points us to one very simple point about relationships with God. He says, look, a relationship with God requires a relationship with Jesus. Again, John was the one in his gospel who years and years earlier had reminded us that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus made it very uncomplicated for us, didn't he? He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying there's there's no other way. Uh, John, in this essay that he writes years later, kind of parrots that idea in verse 23. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. There's only one way into a right, into a healthy, into a saving relationship with God, and that goes only through Jesus. 
for as long as humankind has existed, we have speculated about all the possible ways to have a healthy relationship with our Creator God. Most in the ancient world, and many in John's day, what they did is they tried to cover their bases as best they could. They tried to serve as many gods as they possibly could. You might recall that the Apostle Paul pointed out to the Athenians at one point, you guys have so many temples to so many different gods in this city. You even built a temple, and he pointed to it. It was down at the end of the block. You even built a temple and dedicated it to the God we forgot about, just in case there were any we missed, right? That was the religious dynamic in John's day. You better cover all your bases. Serve as many gods as you can. Folks might make sacrifices in the temples of the Greeks. While at home they paid homage to idols of their ancestors. And meanwhile they were observing the festivals of the pagans and the nations around them. They were doing everything they could to cross their fingers, cross their toes, and hope that somewhere along the way we just might get the one that matters. I imagine it's kind of like the folks that want to pay the lottery, play the lottery, and so instead of buying one ticket, they buy a thousand. I gotta win. If I buy all thousand tickets, I must win. I mean, what are the odds? By the way, don't do the math on that. You won't be encouraged. Our modern world really isn't any different. I mean, we don't have temples to gods like the Greeks did. It doesn't look like Athens in the sense that Paul would recognize it, but our modern world really isn't any different. One of the most common religious theologies that you'll encounter amongst people this day is that you can please God any way you want as long as you do it sincerely. Be a good Buddhist, you can please God. Be a good Muslim, you can please God. Be a good Christian, you can please God. Or just, just be a good person. Maybe you don't need organized religion at all. Just be a good person. But do it sincerely, folks say, and you'll please God. It just really doesn't matter what you do as long as you do it sincerely. God honors all. Have you heard people talk about that? Have you encountered that kind of thinking? Have you maybe even wondered it for yourself? That's okay, but today you need to hear what John has to say about that. I believe if he knew how to spell it, he would have said, (laughs) not knowing how to spell it. He just says, no, that's not the case. The truth actually isn't nearly that complicated. There's no need to try and cover your bases. There's no need to build temples to gods that you don't even know their names of. You don't have to do all your research and figure out all the ways and figure out all the things so that maybe, just maybe, just maybe you can cross your fingers and hope that you got the right one. It's far less complicated than that. The truth is that there's only one way to find a life-saving relationship with God. And that is to place all of your hope and all of your trust and all of your faith in Jesus alone. Jesus alone. No others. No others. Nothing else. Jesus. Period. Full stop. End of paragraph. It's clear from the text that we read today that John has said all these things. I boiled them down into four different bullet points. Maybe you want to analyze it a little bit different, but we all read the same message. Why is he telling us this? He said all of these things so that we would know who to listen to. That's really why he's talking about this. He's saying, look, folks, 
I know you're hearing a lot of different voices. I know you've heard a lot of people claim to speak for God or about God with authority. I know you've heard, good grief, this person said this and that person said the exact opposite. How are we, know, how are we to know what to do? He's saying, I get it. You need a litmus test. You need the ability to see and to know and to be confident that what you've heard is true. You need to be able to know who you can trust because things get pretty complicated unless we know who we can trust. And so John says, I'm going to give you these things so you can look at somebody and you can determine, does this person have a trustworthy message from God? Is this really the one I want to be listening to? He's talking about who can we trust? But I, I think, I think there's another thing going on here that in many ways could be even more helpful to us. You see, in all the years that I've been involved in Christian ministry uh, as a church attender, as, as a ministry leader, and now as, as a pastor, in all of those years, I've encountered, I don't even know how many people, countless people, who have essentially the same desire. Serve the Lord long enough, you're, you're going to encounter this again and again and again. It gets articulated different ways. It comes from different contexts. It might look subtly different in this person than it did in this person. But when you really think about it, it all comes down to one thing. I think it's a distinctly human desire. As a matter of fact, I believe it's part of what makes us unique in all creation. You see, the galaxies are awesome. And the mountains are majestic and the oceans are magnificent. The plants are beautiful and the animals are profound, except for the mosquitoes. But we'll get back to that later. All of those things are wonderful. But in all of the created order, only human beings desire to know their creator. It's uniquely part of who we are. You may love your dog and I'm sure you do. But I guarantee you that while you're here in church this morning, your dog is not at home pondering the mysteries of salvation. He's at home thinking, what's that smell? <laughs> I kind of like it. He's not pondering the mysteries of salvation. You, you may find echoes of God's majesty. I, I hope you do. It's, it's actually very scriptural to find echoes of God's majesty in, in the crash of the waves or the beauty of the autumn leaves or the grandeur of the open prairie. But none of those things are seeking the presence of their creator. None of them are aching and yearning for the fulfillment of God's word the way human beings are. Make no mistake it's not just about a fear of the afterlife or the unknown or the emotional safety of following the same tradition our parents followed or anything else that folks might posit. No, it's deeper than that. We hunger for a real life-giving encounter with the divine. And we want it now. We want it now. We used to sing the song, Lord, I'm hungry for a mighty move of God. Lord, I'm thirsty. I think that's really at the essence, at the core of what it is to be a human being. You might not consider yourself to be particularly religious, but there's something in you that's hungry for an encounter with the divine. There's something in you that longs for the confidence of knowing that you know God. 
That prayer gets articulated in many, uh, many different ways, but it might sound something like this. God, I want to have a dynamic, life-giving relationship with you. And God, I don't want to wait until I die to find out if I was right. I want to know now. I want to know now. If there's any part of your life, if there's a season that you can recall or maybe one that you're in right now where you would say, yeah, I might change the words a little bit, but in essence, yeah, that's me. That's what I long for. That's what I hunger for. The good news for you today is that that's possible. Boy, I know a lot of Christians who come to church every Sunday morning and they look at the church lady down in the front row. They look at the, the deacon off to the side. They, they look at the folks who are jumping and singing and waving their hands in worship and they say, what a bunch of weirdos. I wish I could be a weirdo too. I wish I was that sure. I wish I was that confident. I wish I could dance like nobody was looking. <laughs> well, maybe just the Holy Spirit, but seriously, nobody else. Give me some space here. <laughs> oh my goodness, we long for it. We want it. We desire it. How, how do we do it? Is it possible to be that sure? Is it possible to be that confident? We've, we've tried a bunch of different things, haven't we? We've complicated the issue with a million different theories, a million different viewpoints, a million different spiritual experiments, all in an effort to cultivate that kind of a relationship with God, the kind of relationship that our spirits hunger for, the kind of relationship where we, we know that we know. But is it really right? Is it possible? Is it possible to do that? Have we got it right? If you've ever wondered, I want you to hear what God has to say through his word this morning because it's a simple response. It's very uncomplicated. It's very straightforward. He says, you want, you want that kind of relationship with me? Do this. Obey my words. Love my people. Reject the world. And follow Jesus. I'm going to say it one more time. Obey my words. Love my people. Reject the world. And follow Jesus. Will you do that today? And let God show up. Let's pray. Father. We thank you, Lord, for the proclamation of the good news that what we've longed for, we can know. What a cruel joke it would be if you created us with this, this innate hunger and then refused to fill it. What kind of an evil, evil God would do that? What kind of creator would, would make uh, his masterpiece and proclaim to the universe this is the pinnacle of what I've ever done and would implant in that masterpiece this, this longing, this, this hunger, this thirst and then say and I'm going to stand back for all eternity and never tell them what they hunger for. Who would do that? Certainly not you, Lord. 
Certainly not you, God. And so we rejoice in the knowledge of your word today that says what we've wished for, what we've longed for is available to us. It's not complicated, but Lord, because of our sinful nature, it's not always easy for us. So our prayer this morning is simply that you would help us, that what you've called us to and created us for, Lord, you would empower us to do. God is, you hear our voices and examine our hearts right now. It's our desire to obey your words, to love your people, to reject the world and to follow Jesus. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.